This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Finding Your Bliss with host Judy Liebrach. Heard every Saturday at 1 p.m. on Zoomer Radio. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Finding Your Bliss, the show that helps you find and follow your bliss. I'm Judy Liebrach, and I want to start by just reading you some of the praise that our guest today, Shelley Tegelski, received after writing her book, Sit Down to Rise Up, How Radical Self-Care Can Change the World. So here are just some of the things that people have said about Shelley and her book. Let's start with the President of the United States, Joe Biden, who wrote, Shelley Tegelski is saving people's lives and giving them hope. Arianna Huffington of the Huffington Post wrote, Shelley Tegelski is like a superhero whose special superpower is her heart. And one of my favorite people and our favorite people on this show, of course, and that is Dr. John Kabat-Zinn, meditation teacher and the best-selling author of Wherever You Go, There You Are. He wrote, Shelley Tegelski is the real deal, a force of nature. Award-winning actress Deborah Messing said, Sit Down to Rise Up is the book you didn't realize you desperately needed. Shelley shares the lessons she learned from mining the depths of darkness. This book is a gift, and Shelley is a powerhouse. Mm-hmm. Shelley, welcome to Finding Your Bliss. <laughs> Thank you. It's always so interestingly awkward to listen to praise <laughs> about yourself. <laughs> That's a wonderful thing, though, and and it is so well-deserved, and I can say that quite honestly because I I have read this book and, in fact, reread parts of it uh, that I really um, have found so compelling, and I'm just loving it. So I want to congratulate you, first of all, on the book. It made me cry many times, but I'm going to say many of those times it was from a place of deep joy, and... I really think this book and all that you've done in this book and as the founder of Pandemic of Love is really awe-inspiring. And we'll get to that soon. But if it's okay with you, I'd like to just read a little more of your bio now because it's so impressive. Okay. Shelly, I know you thought that was it, right? Shelly Tegelski is the author of Sit Down to Rise Up and the founder of the global grassroots mutual aid organization, Pandemic of Love. Her work has been featured by over 100 media outlets, including CNN Heroes, The Tamron Hall Show, The Kelly Clarkson Show, CBS This Morning, The New York Times, and the Washington Post. A trauma mindfulness teacher and Garrison Institute fellow, she has been called one of the 12 most powerful women of the mindfulness movement by mindful.org. And she teaches self-care and resilience at organizations all over the world. Shelley, your story is fascinating. And I think you've really discovered the secret of life as you write about in the book. What inspired you to write your first book, Sit Down to Rise Up, How Radical Self-Care Can Change the World. Well, Judy, I was inspired to write the book um, because I wanted to see and give the tools to uh, more individuals initially in my space, like the wellness genre, if you will, the wellness space, to uh, connect the inner work to the outer world. I wanted them to be able to you know, get off their butts, <laughs> to, to put it directly, not just work on, on themselves, which is key and very important, but actually to be able to understand that there's this intrinsic connection between the best version of the world, starting with the best version of us. So the book is really, um, you know, set to provide people, hopefully with the end, but also very tangible and practical tools to be able to, to do that. Shelly, you were a meditation teacher and you've always wanted to give people the tools to meditate. And I love that your book is divided into three parts, the me, the we, and the us. And I think a lot of people were doing it for the me reason. I want to calm down. I want to be more tranquil and relaxed and serene. And it's much more than that for you. And I think it's something that um, we're all sort of born with this inherent understanding if we sort of lean into it, Right that we have this moral obligation, yes, to be the best version of ourselves. But the reason we need to do that is so that we can 
have the best version of the world. So, right. So the world starts with the best version of ourselves. And if we're failing to connect these two concepts, if we're doing the inner work, we can look better and live a better life. And it, you know, has this like superficial meaning, which I kind of feel like that's where a lot of the the wellness industry, or as I say in the book, you know, the industrial wellness complex that we're living in, right? That is a huge money machine now, um, where self-care has been monetized. I, I felt that frustration as I as I kept attending all of these conferences. And so the book was really sort of this reclamation. It was set out to be this reclamation for self-care to help people understand like where was self-care really born out of? And it was born out of a need for survival. And, and, and I wanted to remind people that so many people are still struggling to survive, that self-care is not just about thriving, which is what the industrial wellness complex and the beauty brands and the green juices and the fitness classes want us to believe. So yes. that that's that was the impetus and the inspiration for the book. I mentioned that your book made me cry many times, and I don't know what it was that struck me about this story, but when you talked about your first meditation circle on a Sunday morning at 8.30 a.m. in Florida yeah. on a beach, and you realized the night before that there were going to be windstorms and rain and the weather wasn't going to be cooperating, and I think your husband even tried to convince you not to do it, but you were yes. determined to show up. Another huge mantra in your book, and I love that, the showing up mantra. In fact, I want to just ask you first to speak to that, just showing up. And you did. And what made me cry was, I was so scared that no one was going to show up for you, ah. but they did. First, there were two women and yeah. then another 10 women till you were finally 12. And then, of course, what happened was the next week it was 20, the next week it was 50, 200, all the way to over a thousand people where you had to get a microphone and speaker and, and your husband almost didn't believe it. He was like, I have to see this with my own eyes. And that's so incredible. But can you first just talk about that whole mantra of showing up? I think our listeners would benefit so much from hearing what that means for you. Yeah. You know, as I sat down to really write the introduction of the book, I sort of looked through the the themes of uh, everything that I was trying to relay. And I thought, how do I sort of boil this down into what the most important part of this is. Um, what's the one piece of advice that I would give to anyone that I would give my own son, right? About like, if you're only going to do one thing in life, what would that be? And what I've learned consistently is that that is really this, this seemingly simple thing, which is showing up consistently, uh, deliberately, just physically actually being present. Uh, when you say you're going to be present, when you don't want to be present, when you think you're going to be the only one who's going to be there. But like, if you're, if you're going to make a commitment or if something is important to you, then I would say the most important thing that we could do in life is to just continuously keep showing up over and over and over again. And I think what happens is, is that for a lot of people, you know, they get discouraged. They might show up and the first time doesn't go the right way or the second time doesn't go the right way or the third time. And then they're like, well, this isn't working. So, you know, I'm just going to pack my bags or, you know, and nobody showed up. But you look to somebody like, you know, who really is like a symbol of showing up for this new generation, especially like Greta Thunberg. Talk about showing up, like just standing outside day after day on your own, all alone, holding up yeah. a sign by yourself. And look yes. at the momentum that doing that you know, was able to, um, to achieve and similar, you know, with the, the photos that I showed, um, at the beginning of the book, right. There's a picture of me sitting alone on a beach that was actually snapped by a friend of mine who happened to be walking. She does like five miles on the beach, you know, and she saw me and she was like, is that Shelly? You know, so she took a picture of me and shared it with me. And I was like, yeah, like that was when I was showing up for myself. First, I had to show up for myself. And then I realized that I wanted to, or I had the capacity at that point, after I sort of was able to tend to myself and to my own needs and to my own heart, that I had the moral obligation and responsibility to now start to tend to other people. And that's really how the beach meditation circle was born. Uh, mm -hmm. And that whole community grew. But I, like, if I hadn't shown up because of the weather, or if I 
was like discouraged that only 12 people showed up the first time. And I would have said, eh, you know, it was nice. It was fun, but I'd rather (laughs) sleep in on Sunday morning. Right. Then, then none of this would have happened. The image of you, and even without seeing the picture, and yes, I saw the picture. And then of course the the other picture, the juxtaposition where there's so many, there's a thousand people and you're just going, oh my goodness. And I want to get to that in a minute, but just even reading the words, not even seeing the picture, there was just something so poignant Mm. about you laying down the beach towel and sitting there cross-legged and, and just being there. Yeah. And there was something so simple and so powerful and so beautiful just in that image just it was so evocative just as a reader to uh, to read that and then of course as i mentioned eventually a thousand people showed up when you saw that those thousand people that that first time that you had that much of a crowd and you brought the microphone and the speaker with your husband's help were you afraid ever that you wouldn't know how to lead them what do you do you attribute to your strength and your conviction and courage really in knowing what to do once you were there with those thousand people you know, it was always a mystery to me. Like I would always try to kind of put my finger on it and think like, is it the right time? Was it the right place? The right moment? Is it me? You know, and I suffer and I talk about this in the book as well from like imposter syndrome. So I'm like, it can't be me. It has to be, you know, all these other things. It was terrifying some Sunday mornings when I wake up early and think, what am I going to talk about? You, You know, like, yes, okay. I can drop into meditation and lead a guided meditation, but I always gave a Dharma talk Uh, before I did that. And I really just started to share, sometimes my husband would say overshare, but I would share (laughs) the most vulnerable moments and struggles that I was, you know, facing things that were happening in the world that I um, had an opinion on um, that may not have been a favorable opinion or, you know, for every single person that was sitting on the beach, but to be able to say like, yeah, I meditate every day and I have panic attacks. Like, all the time. And I've been meditating for 20 years. You know, I think that speaks to people because they're like, oh, okay. So that's great. So this is just like normal and I'm normal (laughs) and I can have tools that can help me deal with this. You know, I think it's, it's really about creating this safe space for people Mm -hmm. to be Mm -hmm. able to share their hopes and their dreams and their darkest moments, which is really what people brought with them every single Sunday to the beach. And they were able to find these other souls, um, you know, who looked sometimes very different from them, who did it, who were from different cultures and backgrounds and religions, et cetera, and socioeconomic statuses. And people were able to connect on these deep levels, because I think it was just this like safe space of just come as you are and share what you will. There is no judgment here. So it's so incredible. Well, I think that's why people felt safe because you created the safe, sacred space for people by being real and and raw and authentic and, and good for you because that takes a lot of guts to do that. Uh, your own personal story, Shelley, is so compelling. Your book actually opens up with the incredible story of when you were kidnapped at only two years old and rescued by a wonderful stranger. How did that early childhood event impact your life and influence your work as an activist and, and as a self-care activist? Yeah, well, I mean, that story, you know, is one that I don't remember personally because I was two, but it was told to me so often and The story, you know, for a very long time was one of like horror, of course, for any parent as a parent, like you can't even imagine having to go through something like that. Right. Um, But very, very seldom did people ever really like ask about, you know, give sort of like the spotlight to the woman that good Samaritan as identify her in the book, the woman who actually was able to uh, alert my mom to what was happening, who followed the kidnappers several city blocks in Brooklyn in the 1970s to see where they were taking me. And so I was always incredibly curious about her and about the choice that she made at that seminal moment when she was sitting in the waiting room of the DMV in Brooklyn and saw me being carried out by somebody that was different than the person that I came in with. 
And think about this as it relates to our own lives. In any given moment in our life, we have so many decisions points that we can make. We can do nothing, which is actually people think that's not a decision. And it's a very active choice to do nothing, especially when you see an injustice, right? So we could do nothing. She could have done the safer thing, which is I'm going to go, you know, run and try to find my mother and alert her to what's happening. And by then I could have been halfway down to Texas or something. Instead, she decided to do the the most difficult thing, the thing that actually Dangerous. put her own life and, in danger. Right, yeah, right, exactly. Right. And not for any anything other than like, again, it's this, I have the agency to do this. I'm able to lean into that moment in a split second, think about the right thing to do and do it. And that intrigued me my entire life. I thought, would I have this courage to do the same thing as this woman if I was faced with that choice? And for a really long time, I didn't believe that I did because I'm not um, healed enough or I'm too broken. I have to focus on doing the inner work first so that I could get to this like place where I would make that choice in a split second. And I realized, you know, over time that no, actually like we all have and we're all born with this God-given sense of agency or, or actually agency, but none of us really have a sense of agency until we, we claim it. We decide, mm-hmm. you know what, I was born with this like free will. Uh, mm-hmm. And in every moment of my life, I am able to choose to say certain things, do certain things, go certain places to show up. To show up for myself, to show up for others, how I'm going to show up in the moment. And I realize that we all can do that every single day and in every single moment of our lives, you know, during this like journey that I outline in in, in the book. But it's a very outward centered approach. It's a very much of a we and not a me thing. And you and you say you had to get to a certain place where you were at your best in order to be able to give that energy outwards. Did you ever find that woman by any chance? Did you ever thank her or did anyone ever reach out to her? Was she just sort of... No, you know, my parents stayed in touch with her for years. While we were only in New York for about, I don't know, maybe six or seven months after that, my mother was like fed up. She was like, I I didn't come to this country to get my kids kidnapped. She went back to Israel and my father you know, was determined to try to make a life in the U.S. And so he had a friend in Miami and that's how we ended up in South Florida, you know, and where I spent most of my life in South Florida, convinced my mom to come back there. But in these times, if something like this had happened, well, first of all, there's cameras and there's like all this other stuff, but it was just much more difficult to keep in touch with people. As you know, there's no social media. You can't text people. They don't carry their cell phones with them. So they kept in touch with her for a few years and then they lost touch with her. So many years later, I asked my mom, like, do you remember her name, like her full name so I can look her up, et cetera. And like, she only remembers her first name and not her last name. And maybe it's this. And my dad remembers something completely different. So um, my hope is that, you know, who knows, maybe somebody she'll will see read the book. This. She'll hear, she'll hear about the right. book. She'll see you on TV or hear yeah. you on the radio. Stranger things have happened. It's so amazing. Shelly, you grew up in a traditional conservative Jewish family from Israel, and you were taught to follow a certain path and prescribe traditions and fear certain people from other faiths. What shifted for you when you discovered meditation? And can you tell us about your family's reaction when you decided to remarry outside of your religion? Oi. <laughs> Oi, I know. I, 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 I get it. Um, so, yes, I grew up keeping the laws of Sabbath and keeping kosher and um, fortunately for me, living in a, in a neighborhood that was not just only one demographic of people, but and going to public school, actually, because my parents could not afford to send me to a private Jewish school. And so I, I had access and entree to all sorts of people from all walks of life. But I sort of lived this like dual uh, life. I felt like I had two completely separate versions of myself. Shelly A when I was outside of the home and then Shelly B when I was in my community and with my family, et cetera, on the weekends, ex- sure. you know, during the holidays and so on. And I had yes. to sort of reconcile those two uh, when I finally mm-hmm. left home. When I was in grad school, I had the opportunity to uh, learn about meditation. And I, like many other people, had never met a Buddhist person in my life. I thought that meditation was only for a religious purpose, that it was like a form of prayer, which in many ways it is, but that it was like you're praying to 
another God or a different type of God or, and so, you know, I had all these stigmas and stereotypes that I associated with just the term. And what I learned was that really that meditation is a vehicle for that spiritual connection um, with myself, with my own sort of inner, inner goddess, and with just every sentient being on this planet, a, a vehicle for me to deepen my spirituality and deepen my contemplative practices that are that are still very much rooted in Judaism, right? So oftentimes I uh, will say that like I'm a I'm a Jubu or I'm a Buju, you know, which how whichever <laughs> a you, Buddhist a Buddhist Jew exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the reality is that you can hold multiple truths in duality, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't Absolutely. have to choose and be one thing or the other. Now, for my parents, it was a completely different story. For my parents, you know, again, they had their stigma, they had their views, and they view the world with a particular lens. Or as I like to say, you know, we all have a certain toolbox. And some of us are using screwdrivers, and some of us are using drills. And we're like frustrated when we when we're um, looking at somebody using a screwdriver and taking their time and thinking to ourselves, like, what are you doing? Like you could have been done already. Here's, you know, and so my parents in a way have, you know, their own tools. And I had to like, really, um, even though it was very hurtful, you know, to experience their reaction to my, my second marriage, uh, my marriage, my current husband, who we've been married now for close to 15 years, um, who was not Jewish, but is an amazing and incredible human being. Um, I had to make that choice, you know, to, to realize that I have to live my life and follow my path and follow mm-hmm. my heart and leave the door ajar for my parents to be willing to um, re- remind them consistently, even though they weren't talking to us for a very long time. Um, and they mm-hmm. sort of cut us off and we were just done. They were done with us. Right. They excommunicated me. And I, and wow. I, you know, would, would still call and like leave messages on um, a good old fashioned answering machine at the time and say, you know, like Shabbat Shalom, or I love you. And I know you don't want to hear from me, but you know, I just wanted to share this with you. And, and the idea here is that, you know, we sort of tend to see the world in black and white as a response to other people seeing the world in black and white. This is happening so often right now in families, right? When we're talking about vaccinations and not vaccinations and political parties and affiliations and, you know, and so people are like, that's it. It's done. Like I'm never talking to uncle Bobby again because of this. Right. And the Mm -hmm, reality mm -hmm. is, is that, you know, I think we need to start to leave the door open for each other because there's always a road back when the path, you know, the, the, the tried, tested and true path is love. And that's really yes, it. Yes. You know, I never stopped loving my parents. I knew that even if they weren't talking to me, they didn't stop loving me. Um, and I just realized that there was like this sheath, this kind of iron sheath around their heart that just needed to slowly sort of crack open or rust away. And it was going to take some time. And uh, rather than spending every day of my life, like, uh, you know, just, feeling more resentful every day. Right, right. I just, but, you know, wanted to make sure that I left that open. It, it's like the book Conversations with God that love combats everything, right? Love combats sure. fear, love combats anger, love can really cure everything. And I love the story of how when you were studying abroad at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in your junior year of college mm-hmm. and how you had an opportunity to intern with the United Nations agency that was doing polling work yeah. and research in the Palestinian areas and you were conducting surveys with Palestinian mothers about health, health conditions, et cetera. And you connected with a Palestinian woman named Fatima. You would have never done this in the past. We, you know, you were taught to fear, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. anybody that wasn't Israeli, that wasn't Jew, you know, wasn't Jewish in, in, in Israel. And here you fully connected over your children. Can you tell us about that day and what happened? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was pretty incredible because as you say, you know, I grew up in a very sort of hawkish right wing family um, that sacrificed a lot for, um, for, for their country, you know, for their, they, in wars, you know, many lives were lost, et cetera. And so it was just unspeakable and unthinkable that, um, that I could, um, ever be sitting in a living room, having tea with, uh, with a Palestinian woman in an, in a, in an occupied territory. Right. Hmm. And, 
what happened was that, you know, and this is a lesson that I carried with me for all my life and still to this day, is that I realized that proximity, that one word, right? Mm -hmm. Proximity, that when we can, when we can put ourselves in proximity to anyone that we feel is the other, anyone that we fear, anyone that um, represents a group of people that we have never interacted with before that we're, and we can remain curious and open that can create bridges, but that can create um, the ability to recognize how similar we really all are and how we all really want the same things for our children. We want opportunity. We want them to thrive. We want them to be healthy. We want them to be happy. These are things that all sentient beings on this planet want, you know? Absolutely. And I Absolutely. think we just forget that. We sort of, again, we have a certain lens. We have tools in our toolbox that we that we use um, in the world and we forget that there might be other lenses. Um, and so that was an opportunity for me to take that lens off and to say, well, maybe there's a different way to look at this. And mm -hmm. maybe um, everything that I was told is actually not true. And can I be curious about that? Can I, can I approach it with, with a, with a mindful sort of, um, uh, you know, take a mindful approach to thinking, what if this is not true? What would the world mm -hmm. look different? And the answer was mm -hmm. a resounding yes, of course it would. Of course. And with an open heart and with a huge open. And I want to, of course, talk about that you're widely known and praised as the founder of Pandemic of Love, which you created shortly after COVID-19 began. We're going to go on a short commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to hear all about the global movement you founded called the Pandemic of Love that was even featured on CNN Heroes. We'll be right back after this short commercial break. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by CREATE, Canada's leading fertility centre for over 25 years. CREATE is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. CREATE is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, CREATE is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. CREATE has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? CREATE Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about CREATE Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. We are back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio, AM 740, FM 96.7. And I'm here with author of Sit Down to Rise Up, Shelley Tegelski. And we're talking all about how she founded a global movement, the pandemic of love. You're even featured on CNN Heroes. Can you just tell us briefly about this organization, its birth, rise, and mission, and how it went viral? Because you had this idea which probably began the seed of it in these wonderful beach meditation Sunday morning yeah. events. But you created the most wonderful, wonderful thing, a website where people could actually click on one of two buttons. Like you made it so simple. I need help. Mm -hmm. I want to give help. Can you just tell us a little bit more about this pandemic of love and how it, it just went crazy and how the whole world responded? Because then I want to ricochet back to, again, you are always building bridges for people and bridging gaps. It's wonder quite wonderful what you do in this world. Well, thank you, Judy. So, you know, Pandemic of Love in its most, the simply, simplest way for me to describe it is it's a mutual aid organization. I did not invent mutual aid. It's been around for a very long time, for hundreds of years. And um, mutual aid is certainly cropping up everywhere every time there's like a natural disaster or something happens, you know, communities sort of give rise to them and they sort of many times fizzle out. Um, when, and when things go, quote unquote, back to normal, um, we had been enacting, as you mentioned, um, this this group of meditation uh, gatherers in South Florida had been enacting mutual aid for many years during the holidays, during back to school time, after hurricanes, et cetera. And I, I recognize that as a closed unit, our uh, really unique meditation group 
when you sort of looked at it as a community, right? Certainly we're all part of different communities, but that as a holistic community, that every single person within that community had something that they could offer regardless of their socioeconomic status. And every single person had something that they needed. And if we could just create connections between those individuals who needed a friend, who needed a ride somewhere, who needed financial assistance, who needed a job, what have you, we could actually create this beautiful redistribution of wealth and it would create equity and everybody would have enough. That was the dream, right? That was sort of the dream that was bubbling up for, for four or five years as we were gathering. And when the pandemic hit and Florida still wasn't shut down, but we were like getting there, right? New York was already shut down. California, all these other countries were start shutting down. We could see the writing on the wall. And we were starting to talk about how uh, it was inevitable that we were going to shelter at home and that people were going to be obviously, you know, isolating And I realized I was so worried about individuals in our community that already were very isolated, people that already were struggling to make ends meet that, you know, if you're telling a single mom who has two jobs to, um, you know, fill her food up or fridge up with food, you know, and prepare for two weeks at home, well, how is somebody who can barely make ends meet and feed their kids and is relying on free lunch and breakfast at their kids school going to replace those 10 meals per week for their children. Right. And so I realized all of that. And then there was a great sense of despair and angst and fear, like many and probably, you know, felt at the time with this great unknown. And so what I want to kind of like relay it back to, because there's two things here is it's really the meditation training, right. Of like having spent 20 years practicing over 20 years practicing metta, which is loving kindness meditation, an expansion of compassion in the heart. Mm. And as human beings, we are um, evolutionarily designed to, in these times of crisis and despair and angst and fear, to do what? To to immediately default into fight, flight, or freeze mode, right? Mm -hmm. But science has now shown that we can evolve beyond that. And so the scientific terminology that's being studied now is the tend and befriend, which can come after fight, flight, freeze. If you can be in self-awareness that you are in this fight, flight, freeze mode, you can push yourself into this tend and befriend mode. I like to call it empathy action mode, Mm. which is, okay, I'm feeling this right now. Let me label how I'm feeling. Let me like work through it. Let me sit with it. And really feel this fear and, and angst and be scared for the people that I care about within my community and for my own family, for that matter. But then let me ask two follow-up questions. And the first question is, what can I do about it? Yeah. What can I do about what I'm feeling in this moment? Something tangible. What action can I take? And the follow-up question is really important. The follow-up question is, and how do from a place of love? Mm-hmm. Because if, for example, what I'm feeling is anger and my response of what can I do about it is I'm going to fight anger with anger or do this horrible, you know, so that's why the follow-up question is incredibly important. And in that moment, as I was sort of moving through what I was feeling at the beginning of the pandemic, I thought, okay, we've been doing mutual aid in sort of like this closed circuit fashion and it's been cropping up throughout the years. What if I created two forms, two very simple forms because I'm not a technologically savvy person. And I just give help and get help. And I started to connect people within my own community. And I proceeded to do that. I created two Google forms, created a quick 40 second video, put the video on my Instagram account um, and my Facebook account and put up the links. And I went to bed. And the next morning I woke up And I remember I was drinking my cup of coffee. I was in the kitchen (laughs) and I was like, Oh, I wonder if anybody filled out the form. And I went online and I, and I looked at my Google sheets and I spit my coffee out literally on my computer. Cause I was like, Oh my God, like there's like hundreds of people who have filled out both forms. And I don't even recognize as I'm scrolling through the names, not only the names, but even the area codes I'm like, and some had country codes. And I'm like, what is going on? And then 
I turned <laughs> and I'm like, what? I don't know Maria Shriver. <laughs> and I realized that, um, wow. you know, that my friends um, who some of them are, you know, Chelsea Handler, who wrote the forward to my book, who I've been friends with because we met at a meditation conference years prior to that, yes. um, that she, you know, she reposted it. And then her friends who are famous and celebrities and whatever got a hold of it and reposted it. And so it went around the world and came back. And fast forward to almost two years in March, it'll be two years since Pandemic of Love was founded. What we've been able to do is directly connect person A, a person in need with person B, a person who can fulfill that need and they transact directly. In other words, nobody sends money to Pandemic of Love. We don't have a bank account. If a person needs a utility bill paid, we connect them with a the person who wants to pay a utility bill and they actually have to have a conversation in order to be able to transact. And so we've been able to match over 2.1 million people since March of 2020. Wow. And those individuals have transacted over $61 million, which is incredible. And um, we have over 280 chapters and over 4,000 volunteers across 16 countries. It's such heady stuff. I mean, it's really so awe-inspiring and so fantastic. And one of my favorite stories of connection from, you know, these, I need help, I can give help from the pandemic of love matches was the conservative Trump supporter and the liberal woman match and how at first the liberal woman didn't know how she was going to help the conservative person because their political views were so diametrically opposed. And yet they bridged the gap. They they, uh, came together uh, over their children, the daughter of the conservative yeah. uh, daughter loved reading. And so the liberal woman, the liberal mother sent her all these books that had a very liberal yeah. bent and, and, and it worked. And it just shows you, my goodness, what a wonderful example of what we need to do more of in the world. And you really created this. I mean, it's, it's really well, unbelievable. Judy, it, it really harkens back that story to the point of that word again, proximity. When we're willing to be uncomfortable and to have difficult conversations with people who are different than us mm-hmm. and have different views. And I think that's a huge problem in the world today. We're not, we, we only want to talk to people who think like us. We only right. want to watch the news that reaffirms what right. we believe, right? <laughs> right, right. And, and we don't want to put ourselves in uncomfortable spaces. And I think the more we're willing to do that and the more we understand that meditation isn't about getting us to a comfortable space. Mm-hmm. It's about helping us sit with discomfort. Mm-hmm. So we need to be courageous enough to put ourselves in uncomfortable spaces. Absolutely. I mean, there's so many stories and I know I can't get to all of them, but I just, I want to end with some enlightenment and meditation and finding your bliss. Sure. But I just have to first just share something just about you that just shows your character. And if people are wondering, how could this one woman do all this? I want to share this with you. Another part of the book that made me weep was when you described your struggle with a chronic autoimmune eye disease that actually made Mm -hmm. you go blind, which lasted for quite some time. And the story of one morning when you woke up blind, how you had to wake your three-year-old son up to get him Mm -hmm. dressed and ready for school without being able to see it all. And at the same time, not wanting to scare him by telling him what was really happening to you. I was blown away by how brave you were. And I wondered again, where do you get your strength from? That was just a a part of the book that I just thought, my God, how did she go and get him dressed and get all this done without him ever really knowing what was going Mm. on? Where did that, where do you think that strength comes from in you? I mean, I think it's, it's just, it's love for others, right? My love for my son is greater in many, many moments of my life. I will say this. Uh, than my love for myself. A mother will sacrifice herself for her children, right? And so um, you're able to sort of like compartmentalize and say, I'm going to put this incredible fear on the back burner for a minute (laughs) and not actually deal with it until he's at school and my friend dropped him off and then I can freak out, right? At the doctor's office and wherever it is that I need to freak out. And I think that is what so many people do on a daily basis, like social workers and nurses and 
doctors and people on the front lines now. And, you know, we, we sort of put our whole lives on the back burner. How do we do that? How do we, you know, we see this bravery again and again, showing up in the world. And I think that it really goes back to what you were saying earlier, which I think beautifully encapsulates and brings us full circle. Love is the underlying, um, the underlying path. It is the virus. It is the cure. And love is the answer to everything. Love is as cheesy and as cliche as that might sound, but in a very tangible way, it's actually very true. And I would add to that being as outward focused as you are and outward centered, because what you're doing is it's huge. I mean, you you're making the world a better place and you're one person and it's pretty spectacular what you've done. Out of the 384 interviews that I've done on this show, what we always look at is finding your bliss. And I'm wondering if you have ever experienced a real state of enlightenment and how do we know when we reach a state of enlightenment, is it accessible to all of us? And I'm just wondering Mm -hmm. because of the work you do and the remarkable person that you are, do you experience enlightenment on a regular basis like a yogi? First of all, we're all yogis. As I say in the book, you should forego the guru and become a guru. So we're each our own guru. We're each our own yogis. And we could be that for others. I make it a point to find my bliss every single day, uh, especially given the the um, eye disease that I still struggle with. Right, the fact that I know that I could very well still go blind at any given moment. So I put myself in the line of beauty as often as possible on a daily basis, and I commune with nature. As for me, right, my bliss is nature. Um, I'm currently, uh, in Lake Tahoe in California and my husband and I, after my son graduated from high school and is now a sophomore at UC Santa Cruz in California decided, you know, as any good neurotic Jewish mother would, that if I live in Florida and my son goes to school in California, I can't stay in Florida. That's crazy. (laughs) So we're in Lake Tahoe, which is a beautiful place. And, um, you know, I, I go for walks as often as possible. I go on hikes. I sit at the lake. I watch the, the sunset shimmering on the, 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 the top of the lake. I notice, you know, flowers. I stop. I literally stop to smell the flowers. Um, and, and I think that we can all do that on a daily basis and really um, feel so in tune with how beautiful the world actually is and how we're just a part of this enormous tapestry. It's just, you know, it it really gives you a sense of appreciation. What is the ultimate bliss for Shelley Tegelski? The ultimate bliss is being with, with my family, with my loved ones and knowing that we're all healthy and safe. Mm -hmm. As simple as that. Mm -hmm. That's it. Honestly, just, and, and yeah. Absolutely. And I think you get it. And we I, we were just talking about this, but do you have, would you say you have more moments of enlightenment than the average person because of meditation? Like is meditation and mindfulness a pathway to experiencing more yes. enlightenment and nirvana? Definitely. Because I can be more self-aware when I'm not in full attention and I'm not present. Mm-hmm. Right. And I can, um, kind of bring myself back to presence, even if it's just for micro moments throughout the day, right? Um, if it's when I'm going for a walk, but maybe I'm on a phone call, but then if I can, for a few minutes of that walk, walk in silence and pretend as Fitch Not Han says, that my feet are kissing the earth and mindfully walk, right? And just be present in that moment uh, of anything that I'm doing right? Washing a dish, fold, even the most mundane things, folding laundry. I mean, who likes to fold laundry? But the, the idea is that if we can actually bring ourselves back into full awareness, and that's what the training is, right? The meditation, as my teacher Sharon Salzberg says, the meditation is in the return. It's in the return. It's in the noticing. That's where the meditation is. So to be able to train ourselves to say like, oh, I'm having this conversation with Judy, but my mind is wandering and I'm thinking about something completely different. Let me bring myself back to the present moment. And so, yes, ultimately, I think that meditation can help everybody um, find that presence so that we can be fully present and show up for the people that we care about the most. So we can be present when we are finally on vacation or, or like taking that walk 
you know, and, and not be thinking about 17 other things or thinking about how we can capture the perfect Instagram moment, you know, or, or whatever it is that's going through our minds. Why did you name the book, Sit Down to Rise Up? I think I know the answer, but I'm just curious to hear how you would describe that. (laughs) Um, It's something that I said at a Wisdom 2.0 conference when I was sitting on a panel um, and I was sitting on a panel with other activists and I looked out into the crowd, as I said, I was incredibly frustrated. I had just come back from 10 days in, in Israel and in the Palestinian territories and doing doing work, you know, with, with refugees and um, just like looked out and I was just upset seeing again, the same faces. And I, and I said to uh, the moderator, you know, we just, if we're not meditating to, to rise up, we're sitting down in meditation and we're not rising up, then what are we doing? What are we meditating for? And, um, and that was like a moment that everybody in the audience was like, oh, wow. okay. And my publisher uh, who carefully like <laughs> reviewed all of the footage that I guess was ever out there of me uh, heard that phrase and was like, Bingo, that's, that's the title of your book. <laughs> that's the title of the book. Wow. Well, I, I, I have to ask you, what are your ultimate hopes for Sit Down to Rise Up? What would you like to see happen just briefly? Because I know they're telling me yeah. to wrap, but what would you like to sure. see happen as a result of this beautiful book? Well, one of the things that I'm working on doing is really uh, devising a sort of compendium, a free handbook, no barriers to entry, free handbook to the to, to the book uh, that can help uh, individuals, communities, and organizations devise their own self-care plans, create communities of care, create safety nets, create safe spaces for each other so that we're not just, um, you know, rising up for each other in times of angst and crisis, but rather uh, that we can create these communities of care uh, for all times mm-hmm. and, um, and really start to create that equity and uh, make sure that everybody in our community, however we define that community, is okay and that they have enough. Wow. That's my hope. Wow. The book is called Sit Down to Rise Up, How Radical Self-Care Can Change the World. The author is Shelley Tagelski. She's the founder of Pandemic of Love. There's a forward by Chelsea Handler. It's fantastic. And so is the the afterword by uh, Sharon, your meditation teacher, yes. Alsberg. That's quite wonderful as well. Shelley, what is the best way for people to contact you, connect with you on social media? And of course, how can people buy your book? So the best way to connect with me on social media, I'm very active on Instagram and my handle is mindful skater girl. Uh, Tagelski is impossible to pronounce and spell mindful skater girl because I like to skate, uh, skateboard. Um, And um, I post often and most of the time I'm posting opportunities and ways that people can help families in need. I highlight stories on my stories every day, families that are in need and how you can directly help them through mutual aid. Um, People can buy the book anywhere. It's available on Amazon, on Barnes and Nobles, Target, and also through your local bookseller uh, at bookshop.org. So definitely try to support your local bookseller if you can. And the best way to connect with me is through my website, which is shellytagelski.com. You don't have to fully spell it out. You could just spell... Google Shelly, S-H-E-L-L-Y, and then T-Y-G, and it'll pop up because there's very (laughs) few people with that last name in this planet. That's so fantastic. I want to thank you so much, Shelly Tagelski, for being on the show today and really for making such a profound and meaningful difference in this world. You're truly a person who's not only found your bliss, but you're helping others to find their bliss as well every day. And it's, it's just remarkable. It really was an honor to have you here today. Thank you so much. Thanks, Judy. It was great talking to you. We're going to go on a short commercial break. More with Finding Your Bliss when we come back, back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by Create, Canada's leading fertility center for over 25 years. Create is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. Create is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, Create is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. Create has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? Create Fertility Center is here for you. 
Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about Create Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. We are back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio, AM 740, FM 96.7. And our featured artist this week is the Grammy-nominated lead singer, Rhett Miller, from the indie alt band, The Old 97s. One of Shelley Chigelsky's favorite artists, Rhett Miller is also a maker of solo LPs, the host of Wheels Off, author of kids' books, and so much more. Here's Rhett Miller singing world inside the world due to international copyright law podcasts are unable to include music music can only be played on the live radio broadcast finding your bliss airs every saturday at 1 p.m if you'd like to hear this artist's music you can find the link to our finding your bliss soundcloud in the episode description that was so gorgeous Rhett. i just love that song i can see why shelly tagelski is such a huge fan thanks for that Each week, we spotlight a singer, songwriter, or musician on the show. If you're a singer, please write to us at music at findingyourbliss.com. And if you're an author, artist, yoga, meditation, or mindfulness expert, or really anyone who has found and is following their bliss, we would love to hear from you. You can write to us at fyb at findingyourbliss.com. I'm also a life coach and a make-it-happen kind of coach. And if I can help you in any way, let me know. You can reach out and contact me at findingyourbliss.com slash coaching. I'm also on the Insight Timer number one free meditation app. And all you have to do is search up Judy Lee Bracken. Of course, you can always follow us at The Bliss Minute on Instagram and Facebook. I would like to thank my guest, Shelly Tegelski, for being on the show today. Thank you to Meg Ruffman, producer Siobhan Kiley, associate producer Shelly Koskinen, senior editor Haley Allegia, editorial assistant Lauren Kaminsky, intern Beatrice Pardell-Costa, and audio producer Faz Kazi. And of course, a big thank you to our sponsor, the Create Fertility Center, and everyone here at Zoomer. For everyone here, I'm Judy Liebrack, reminding you all, to show up. As Shelley Tegelski says, just show up. It's the best place to start. And take one step closer to finding your bliss. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.